Could you tell us a little bit more about the origins of the book, what stimulated your interest in it? I, uh, it, it, it was a wonderful read, actually. Um, what stimulated my interest in this book? Well, I went from being a complete um, Western neophyte expat in Africa where I was always looking for European food and going to those French supermarkets where I could find camembert to having a full all-out love affair with the cuisines in the many African countries that I lived and worked in. Mm -hmm. And it was a slow process because I had to decolonize my brain. Cool. And fortunately, I had a lot of African friends who helped me do that. And I shouldn't say African, but friends from the African continent because we're talking about Burkina Faso, Mali, Cameroon, which is an amazing country when you come to diversity of cuisines, Benin, Ghana, Senegal. Sierra Leone, and yes, also in East Africa, although I didn't spend as much time in East Africa. I'm sure there's about 10 more books to be written Oh, there, oh yes. Or a thousand. <laughs> oh, yes. It, it, it really covers the ground in so many ways, uh, and I found it such a valuable resource. What's been the reaction? Well, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitating because there hasn't been much of one. Oh dear. Um, among African friends and African media that have seen it, and I did an interview with some on, on BBC Focus on Africa, and had some very positive response from friends in Africa about it. Um, in Canada here, it's a, it's pretty much a lead balloon. Mm. Um, it's had zero publicity, apart from your interest and one, I think, Ethiopian um, blogger. I haven't seen any reviews of it. The people just cannot get their head around the fact that the African continent had amazing civilizations, <laughs> amazing linguistic, cultural, musical, artistic, scientific, and yes, culinary traditions, and that they knew how to farm. Mm -hmm. It's just too hard for people to get their heads around that. I mean, I read, it was a it was two days ago, somebody who's, I'm writing right now about mining, and I wrote a lot about mining in Africa, and now I come back to Canada, to Nova Scotia, and I find the same horrible things happening here. And so I've been writing about mining, and some prospector wrote a letter to the newspaper and said, on one hand, Joan Baxter is an author, not an expert on gold. And the next line was, let me see if I can get it right. Um, most of the people in developing countries would be starving if they weren't mining. Oh my God. And that is the kind Atrocious. of misnomer and misinformation and ignorance that prevails here, which is why, you know, you get people saying to, to you know, when you say you're writing about African food and they go, well, aren't they all starving? <laughs> And it's really, really unfortunate, but it is so typical that everything Africa's ever produced is, is undervalued, not by Africans. I have to say Africans love their, people in Africa love their food and their cuisines, and it's the thing that I've been told by um, people from the diaspora here in Canada that they miss the most, is their mothers and their grandmothers cooking. Oh, yes. And even when you get, as you're pulling in close to the food traditions by having odd trees that they paid more attention to than you, and, and, and we're opening up little buds with these amazing flavors. You, ha you have to open your eyes and your taste buds for a period of time before you would awaken to all this. 
No, it is. It's like it's actually it's like an awakening. It's because it's like learning to see. It's like learning to speak. Yeah. It's like learning to hear. I mean, I used to drive through the landscapes in the Sahel of West Africa during the dry season, and you'd say to yourself, how on earth do people survive here? It's right, just like right. almost desert. Okay, what are those trees doing over there? I guess they right. forgot to clear those. Right, right. Having no idea, and then you'd come back in the rainy season, and you'd see these flourishing, diverse range of crops underneath those trees because they kept those trees there because they're all either very important ecologically or for the services uh, and products that they provide and for the foods they provide or all of the above, mostly all of the above. Mm -hmm. And so it was, a, it was a real immersion course in botany, in agriculture, in... Um, the science of medicines, all those things double as medicines. Mm -hmm. And to think that we were dismissing it in the early agricultural so-called assistance from the always wise Westerners came in and told them to cut down all the trees, plant maize. <laughs> even, if it uses, <laughs> even if it uses an intense amount of fertility in the soil, needs a lot of rain, is susceptible to pests, Cut down all those trees because they didn't know what they were and give them advice. And I always say this to friends in Africa. I said, why were you guys so polite? It's the same as the indigenous people in North America. Why did you let everybody come in here? Mm -hmm. You should have put up the sign because the culture is that way. You know, you go to a community. <laughs> you go to a village in Africa, supposedly you're there to help, right? You know, you've got nothing to offer, really. I had nothing to offer, usually. I'm not a doctor. I couldn't do any healing or anything like that. But they would kill their last goat and feed me with it before I could get out of the village. The generosity, the sharing, that culture of even the way people eat around a bowl and share, and there's always room for another hand at that dish, is something we should be learning from them, not imposing our big ideas on them. Well, wonderfully said. Uh, you know, you, you talked about a lot of the issues around this imposition of the Western model and uh, the, the, the 12 basic foods instead of the 150 plus that they were eating and so on. Then the other issue that we also talked about was how uh, this monoculture was being imposed on them and they were often being forced off the land or into landless uh, um, labor. Uh, how do you see this shaping now? What, 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 what's, the, what's the chances of versus big business and the smallholders? Well, I mean, what has happened in the last... It's, it's been accelerating. The change has been accelerating. When I first went to uh, Niger in the early 1980s, one, there was no plastic. You didn't see plastic. I would be served in, in a village, I would be served local drinks made out of ginger and all sorts of local tamarind and all the, the wonderful local condiments that go into beverages, baobab, out of a calabash or a glass. Uh, there was no plastic. And it was the same as there was almost no imported food. You would never ever find people eating imported food, even in urban areas. They were still basically consuming local crops. When I was in Burkina Faso in the 80s, and I had no idea what really was happening around me, but I think my greatest mentor 
in Africa over the years was Thomas Sankara. And with his revolution, one of the things that he started, he's the first locavore on this, on this planet. <laughs> he held a day um, of the tomato, which is not an indigenous crop, but it's used in everything. Because he's been, why are we buying tomato paste from all over the planet when our own fruit and vegetables are going to waste here? He banned the importation of apples. He said, produce, lo produce consume what we produce. Mm -hmm. And he, he opened my eyes to the fact that they had immense resources there that, of course, were being undervalued because of this colonial mindset that if it didn't come from outside, it's not good. And that really opened my eyes. And when he held a banquet, when the former pres French president came, flew in in his, what did you call those supersonic jets back in the day? I've forgotten the name. Oh, the SD Carabao. Uh, Which almost couldn't land at the Ouagadougou airport. Anyway, when he came in, I mean, Thomas Sankara served him local fare. One concession, there was French cheese, but that was it. It was local beverages. There was no French wine. Imagine what a shock that was oh, to the French who go everywhere with their camembert and their champagne. I mean, they just can't move without it. So that was really a statement that to me was so key there. It was the most important thing he said that night was actually the food. Mm. This is what we have here and this is what you're going to eat and it's delicious. And it is delicious. It's, it's you know, there's so much diversity. The fruits, the, the vegetables, the oils that... that that are being lost. When you change the farming system, then you also lose all those crops. Exactly. And then you lose your cuisine and you lose your food culture, which is why suddenly Africa's gone from having people with terrible food insecurities, partly because of the conflicts and the bad development advice over the years and changing climate and bad land use. But now they've got more people who are obese then they have people who are underweight. So now they've got two health crises at the same time. And that's the nutrition transition to all of this imported, highly processed food. And, and uh, the, the corn, again, back to the maize for corn, uh, villagers are having diabetes and high blood pressure like we never saw in the past. It's just awful. And, and, and then there's the, the, the big business aspect coming in. And uh, we hear about the land grabbings. We've covered that a lot on the show. Uh, but, uh, but it also means there's a lot of landless people now. And uh, that has, I'm sure, another impact on uh, food because of their desperation. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it was just horrendous for me to watch it in Sierra Leone to see this big Swiss billionaire coming in and taking 50,000 acres for sugarcane mm. to send ethanol to Europe so that they could feel good about driving their cars. And now we have this... Uh, if it's not the French, it's the Europeans. And that was being supported by European development banks. So the problem is, is that all of this stuff that's happening, and it's all linked, the land grabs are linked with the takeover of the food system and the takeover basically of the whole food system and production system by corporations. And it's all being called development. And this is, this is where I have a real problem with the term development. Development, who's development? And so the big billionaire philanthropists, so the, the Bill Gates of this world with the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
and Harold Buffett and all of those people, they talk a good game. But if the root of it, if you trace it back, follow the money, you see that the whole thing is part of a corporate takeover for bigger, more industrialized farms and fewer crops. And they disenfranchise all the smallholders because they have no respect for their farming. And unfortunately, almost everywhere in Africa, and it was certainly the same here in North America in the 40s and 50s, what's the mantra said spoken to kids? Study hard, do well in school, or you'll wind up a farmer. Mm-hmm. So it's not, there's no respect. Just as there's no respect given to you know, traditional foods. And one of the most amazing studies that I found when I was working on this book was one that came out in The Lancet. And they, pardon me if I don't have all the figures, I think it was 187 countries. And they looked at healthy diets and ranked diets by how healthy they were in 187 countries around the world. And they did the first round in 1990, and then I think the next round was in 2010. Uh, 20 years. And the top 10 countries with the healthiest diets, nine of them were in Africa, the other one was Israel. And at the top of that list, the world's poorest, monetarily poorest countries, which means they were quote, less developed. Among them you saw Mali, um, Burkina, Ghana was on the list, Sierra Leone was on the list. So that tells you so much about what kind of development is being encouraged in Africa. It's it's a takeover of their food Mm -hmm. and farms. And it leads to all the same health problems that we have here with our food and our farms. So the idea is to drive, Bill Gates has said it, he has no respect for smallholder farmers, he doesn't think they're viable. You know, you should have big industrial farms, he doesn't say it quite that way, it's all hidden, and then people get paid work on those farms. And of course all the, all the inputs that are required, and yeah. cargoes and, and complete GMOs. erasure, you know, there's no more food sovereignty at all. And that's the other thing is that they've been shaping the seed laws all over Africa. There have been big battles in Malawi over this because they're trying to take over. As soon as they discover a local crop, I'm so afraid they'll do that with Fonio in West Africa, which is a miracle grain, super healthy, absolutely delicious. It could be the new quinoa, but I don't want it to be because it means somebody's going to take that over, probably change one gene in it and patent it, and they'll lose their own crops. They lose control of their own crops as soon as somebody outside discovers them and realizes how good they are. Oh. Well, uh, the, other, the other aspect, of course, is uh, all sounding uh, pretty, pretty negative, but are there any promising signs that you could look at? Like are there co-ops arising? Uh, organizations like Grain are promoting uh, uh, what we hope is permaculture, sustainable agriculture, those kinds of things. Uh, do you see any I see several. I see a huge awakening in Africa, you know, as countries become more, quote, developed, and certainly among urban Africans, they're realizing what they're losing. And I see a huge awakening, and I also see a a changing mentality. I mean, when you watch it, the beacon, the democratic beacon for the world, self-proclaimed beacon, which was the United States, which was almost everybody's dream in Africa was to go to the United States. When you watch the, the, the lunacy and how that country is collapsing, I think that gives Africans pause and say, you know, actually, you know what? We can probably do a lot of things on our own without those people. 
Two, there's a huge move around the world towards African cuisine. It's become really big in the diaspora, and they're introducing it all over the world. I mean, it started out in Canada. There were a lot of Ethiopian restaurants, but now you'll find, certainly in a city like Montreal, you'll find every country there. And they're bringing in the ingredients. And in some places, in Guelph, for example, they're actually trying to grow many of these crops. So I see a huge interest, and I see a lot of interest among people looking for new and interesting foods who are slowly discovering that there really is great stuff coming out of Africa. In Africa itself, there are a lot of small grassroots organizations and smallholder farmers associations who are, have really been fighting tooth and nail. And I'll take the example of Burkina Faso, where Monsanto came in, brought in its BT cotton with the complicity of Blaise Compaore, who's now gone and discredited, thank goodness, and after two years, they realized that so-called great fiber was too short, and the price of their cotton went plummeted on the world market. The quality went down so much that they are launching those, and they're all smallholder farmers. You know, when, when we talk about cotton, we're talking about the cash crop that they grow on their small farms. There's a, there's a lawsuit against Monsanto, and they've banned BT cotton in Burkina Faso. So those are the kinds of movements that I see. I mean... Farmers know what they're doing. Their lives depend on it. They're not like some you know, fancy expert who flies in and says, you should do this, and flies out again or stays in the Hilton that night. Their lives depend on what they're doing, so they need the diversity of crops to prevent mass problems with pests or with, if this crop fails, I've got these crops. The trees are a wonderful thing to have in farming systems because they withstand years of drought and they help people get through long periods, dry seasons, and they, they provide so many services. Also, they fertilize the soil in many cases. So the farmers know what they're doing. I would just love to see the public back here. Again, one of the reasons I came back to Canada is I realized the problems in Africa often have their origins in other capitals. And so you've got all these well-meaning development assistants people over there who realize they're actually part of the game. So I came back because I would like to see people wake up to the fact that what very often is called development assistance is, is absolutely not helping anybody except us. It's partly a matter of, of which <coughs> defining parameters or indicators of success, what you call progress and what numbers yeah. represent that yeah. and what is progress. Yeah. Th all those questions, it's fight for knowledge really yeah. and, and, for, and, t and t to determine how one measures goodness in a society. Yeah. And goodness is a society that looks after its fellow members. And, you know, and we have, I mean, Africa, I'm not minimizing the problems that there are in African countries with, with conflict, with land degradation, with climate change, with very bad governance. Um, but <laughs> if you look carefully at what's going on in the Sahel, why does Canada have to go and get involved to bring peace to Mali? Mm because the West decided it was going to overthrow Gaddafi from one day to the next, and not just overthrow him, but slaughter him and do worse. And that, at the time, every single president in, in West Africa said, don't do it. You'll destabilize the whole region, and that's exactly what they did. When I lived in Mali, I went everywhere. There was nowhere in that country I wouldn't drive into, even with the problems in the north that they used to have with the Tuareg. I still, I drove, I, we went to... I went to Gao, which is now a military base. I was in Timbuktu all the time, which also has good cuisine, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
influence from Morocco and from the Sahel. But I'm, it's that conflict that you see in that country did not have its origins there. It has its origins in the French putting a ridiculous country together that didn't belong as one country and destabilizing politics everywhere in neocolonialism. So I don't know how I got to the conflict in Mali, but I'm just but, saying but that a, the problems, again, have their origins outside. With Usually they have, well, definitely people will collude at that side as well, but um, it's being driven by corporate power outside. And it's here in Canada, North America, and Europe that we have to start addressing those, not start We've been doing it for a while. Well, I don't see very uh, The gap that I used to see, like, there used to be this idea in my head that there was a qualitative difference between, okay, they're developed, you know, good governance. I mean, Canada sends out all these experts on good governance and election observers, right? Hello. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it's time. I mean, I've had a lot of friends in Africa who say, do you want us to start sending election observers? <laughs> <laughs> Joel Baxter, thank you very, very much. What a, a wonderful pleasure. interview. <laughs>